So two weeks ago, uh, we started a new series called uh, Mantle. Uh, in this series, we are going to uh, be looking at two of the most significant prophets in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. Uh, their stories are told in the books of First and Second Kings. In our intro, uh, as we looked at this, uh, this book, remember it's just one book actually, I said the prophets proclaim God's word to God's, God's kings and people so that the people and the kings might have a biblically informed imagination. In other words, that they might be able to see the world and themselves in it as God intends them to see it. The prophet speaks God's word, and that word is meant to evoke an alternative perception of the world. We all perceive the world as we live in it, as we see it, hear it, feel it, touch it. And that world forms and shapes our understanding, and often the reality is we get it wrong. Like we think the world is this, and it is actually that, or we rebel against what we know to be true, because we all have confirmation biases, and we miss it. We don't just see it rightly or hear it rightly. And so God, consequently, in his mercy, condescends to us by his word. And in the history of Israel, this was the prophet, the man of God, who would speak God's word to remind that the, uh, the, them that the world belongs to God. This is his world, that he is alive and active in his world. And so today we're going to do that, uh, do one more kind of intro text, and this text covers the end of 1 Kings 12 and all of 1 Kings 13. And as you will see, it's an interesting and crazy text, but in it, I think we are given foreshadowing both to the book as a whole and the upcoming history of Israel. And so as we move into, the, into it today, I want you to consider, what does, what do your fears cause you to do? Like when you are afraid or nervous or anxious, what do those fears inspire in you to do? How do you try to seize control of your world and chase the fright away? Or maybe you don't seize control of your world. You ignore what makes you afraid. You fight it with make-believe. I'm not afraid. Let's just all eat a donut. Do you obsess about your fears? almost spiraling around that fear, thinking about how things will only get worse and worse and worse, and then you will die and you will be forgotten, despairing over them to weirdly get a handle on them. Do you maybe use technique, some sort of meditation or prayer? What do you do with your fear? Mark Sayers is a writer, a pastor, a type of kind of futurist. He says that what we do with our fears and anxieties, we create what he calls strongholds. Now, what he means by this is a stronghold is a place of protection and safety, a place where we can be untouched by the powers that toss us to and fro in our world. And the key feature of these strongholds is that they can be attained apart from God. They are alternative gospel stories, alternative good news stories. So we form these places where we look for solace, strength, comfort, or hope. These 
places create buffers for our anxiety. They, they make us feel safe. They promise us the good life. This is what Sarah says. When we are anxious, we seek out strongholds. When we cannot find one, we build one. We seek to centralize control and power in a stronghold, and the architectural plans are drafted in the anxious human heart. The oldest antidote to our fears and our anxieties. And the thing is, once a stronghold is created, they grow in size and magnitude and take on a life of their own. And everyone outside of it, outside of that stronghold, everyone outside of the places where you seek protection becomes a threat to said protection. Now, this is what's happening in our text today. Now, normally, we read the text. We're going to kind of work through it. This is a longer text. We're going to kind of work through it in different movements. There's going to be, you're going to be excited about this. There's seven movements, seven, in our text. And uh, what we'll see is that King Jeroboam, remember, he is the king in the north. What I mean by this is that after the death of Solomon, Israel's divided into a northern and southern kingdom. Rehoboam was Solomon's son. He was a horrible king, and the kingdom was, in essence, taken from him by division. Like a family that divorces, and then there's two families in place of the old one family, a new timeline, new traditions, new places take root. So Israel becomes north and south, with 11 of the families of Israel going north and the remaining one family staying south. So you have Israel and Judah, and there are now two kings, Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north. And what the south had that the north didn't have was the temple. Now remember, the temple in Israel's history is the place where God would reside. It was the place of God's rule and God's blessing. It was the place of God's throne room, his altar, the places where, where sins would be forgiven. So let's jump into our text here in the uh, First Kings chapter 12. And the first movement is the fear of the king. Starting in verse 25 of chapter 12. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up and offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of the people will turn against, again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Now notice the first move of our text, and this is how we're going to look at it. Remember, seven moves is the fear of the king. The king does what so many of us do. He's pondering in his heart, where do our fears and our anxieties come? We start spinning words, thoughts in our hearts. And when those intrusive thoughts come, we respond with what? Action. Something to assuage those fears. What is the fear of the king? In the face of Yahweh's promises that his kingdom would endure, Jeroboam fears that the people of Israel will pine, will want, will long for Jerusalem, the city of David, both the temple and the throne. And notice how it spirals. Not only will they long for the temple and all the pageantry and nostalgia that happens there. Now, right, right, right now, 
we're entering into this season of fall in Albuquerque. It isn't just home to pumpkin spice lattes. It is home to more than that. The State Fair. Maybe you're not a fair person. Well, the Balloon Fiesta. I know you're one of those two. And great weather and crisp, cool mornings, followed by cloudless, temperate days and cool, fresh evenings, light jackets, time outside. And at these events, there really is like built-in history. I was telling uh, Deke last night on the way home from the football game where he was, he, 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 last night he thought he was lost. He actually wasn't. He just got disoriented and lost sight of me, but when he looked up and couldn't see us, he got afraid, and his fears caused him him to run up and down the stairs, and then I saw the fear on his face and knew he thought he was lost. And I saw him the whole time, but he thought he was lost anyway. So I was telling him on the ride home when our city group one time went to the balloon fiesta, and one of the kids got lost. That's what these things do. There's this history tied up into fall and for Israel. I'm going to tell you the end of the story of the kid getting lost. We found him. Um, but like all of, like that's part of the story of the balloon fiesta for me now. It's like part of the history that's built in. Like everything that we do in the city at this time of year comes with this embedded narrative and story. And that's what Jeroboam is afraid of. The temple had this embedded story and all these traditions and rituals that were attached to it. And he knows that when the people know they can't go back to the south and to the temple, that they're going to long for that. And if he doesn't supply supply the people with that, they're going to long for it. They're going to go back. And then, notice how it spirals, they're going to come back and kill him. Like fear causes us to do some stuff now, right? You know what's interesting is is that we can do this with the church too. Like as parents, we have this experience of youth group or church lunches with grandparents or family or nostalgic ice cream socials or powerful moments at a retreat or mission trip. And then we here as adults ourselves start to think back and go, hmm, I, I miss that. Those were the cloudless days, we think. And then we become afraid. Maybe something's wrong. I don't do that. I feel that. My kids might not experience that. And in fear, we spiral and then act in different ways. We do this other ways too, by the way. Like like when you're at a party and if you're a parent and your child doesn't uh, misbehaves, the fear that rises up in your heart is what? That I'm doing something wrong as a parent. And so the way to control that is your anger, your stern look. And so that becomes the method and modus of operation that you resort to time and time again out of what? Fear, anxiety, worry. So in the face of that fear, Jeroboam initiates a plan. And here's movement two, the plan of the king. Look at verses 28 through 33. So the king took counsel. He gathered his advisors, his inner circle. What are we going to do about this? I don't want the people to go back to Judah, to the temple. What can we do to make sure that that doesn't happen? Because if they do that, they might come back and kill me. He says, well, let's make two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, 
and the other he put in Dan. You see, Jeroboam initiates liturgical innovation. Why? Because he's afraid. Peter Leihart, in his commentary on Kings, which I'm working from a lot today, says, Jeroboam is a sociologist of religion. He understands the power of nostalgia and faith. He knows that pining for better days, that feeling of pining for better days, he, he knows the consequences of not having that, so he institutes worship to combat it. Now Sayers says it like this, the stronghold becomes the central hub in a system of strongholds. First, there's this formation of a hierarchy, an arrangement of power, then a defining story that explains and justifies the power. Jeroboam, we are the people of the north. We need our own place to worship. And we need a representation of our God that we can worship him so it'll be different than the God of the south. Still the same God, but a different representation of that God. Remember, God defines himself as a God who is unseen. And Jeroboam puts God into the seen realm of golden calves, just like his predecessor Aaron did at the base of Mount Sinai. What comes next is communication about the way to life, practices and protocols and patterns that, along with the, that, that allow for the continuation of the stronghold and then becomes institutionalized and formalized. And at the heart of all of this is pride protection, power, to root out all fear. Now let's read the rest of the section in verse 30. Then this thing, this golden calves, becomes a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the tribe of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places that he had made. Notice that refrain, the things that he made. He went up to the altar that he made in Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart, and he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. The plan of the king is that he will take care of his fears. And in the place of the Feast of Booths, he institutes an alternative feast. He consecrates his own priest, not from the Levitical tribe of Aaron. There's too much baggage. That would be too much of a fight to fight. I want something new and different. Um, we don't do it that way anymore. And then he constructs two shrines in the place of the one temple and gives Israel's gods that they can see, two calves that represent Yahweh. You see, Jeroboam understands the power the community-building, nostalgic-capturing power of ritual. And he sets out to exploit it towards his own end. He uses Israel's religion to maintain his social and political power and cohesion. And in his fear, he walks in his own way. He cuts his own path, the way of Jeroboam will be the sin that happens over and over again in our reading of the kings. 
And that way, when afraid or anxious or power-seeking, he offers Israel promise or explanation through a God they can see. He offers Israel idols, promises of safety to relieve their anxious and fearful hearts. He offers them idols that represent Yahweh but aren't Yahweh. And so Jeroboam seeks to unify the people of Israel and relieves his anxiety through idolatry. Friends, division, both national and religious, hear this, division, which we know as a people in our current moment, both national and religious, are often the results of this sort of sociology of religion, driven by fear and anxiety. This is true for Israel, it's true for history, it's true for us. Now think about our moment for a second. How do our own fears cause us to pine for days of yonder yore, where faith and family seem to be more part of our national fabric? Something is remiss. We must institute a way to reclaim it. Jeroboam's plan isn't repentance. It isn't a return to Yahweh. It's a new way that gets to the old. Calves for a new Aaron. A new place for God's people. New days to celebrate. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, is not mocked. So what does he do? He interrupts Jeroboam's plan with the man of God. This is move three. Look at verse, uh, chapter 13. It's on the screen. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar ready to make offerings, and the man of God cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priest of the high places who make offerings to you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign that same day, saying, This is a sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against at the altar of Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! And the minute he did that, his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. And the altar was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. You see, the break-in of the man of God is abrupt. That word, behold, look, see, a man of God is coming from where? Judah. Now, this is not insignificant. The storyteller of Kings is doing something in his retelling Judah is coming to Bethel. Now, hold on to that. But prophets break in. We'll see this in Elijah and Elisha. They are like Jedis. They suddenly appear, breaking into the natural history of God's people. This man of God breaks in and evokes a what? A proper way of seeing and living in God's world. He prophesies against what Jeroboam has built, his place of worship, his altar. Now, the altar for Israel is the place where heaven and earth are to meet. The altar is the place where sacrifices were offered for sins to Yahweh, the unseen God, where remission for sins is given. Here, the man of God prophesies, and the prophecy 
tears the altar into two. And the tearing symbolizes what God is going to do to the kingdom of Jeroboam. If he does not repent, the kingdom that he is afraid of losing, all the the stronghold that he is creating out of his fear of losing this kingdom, the man of God has come to prophesy. If he does not turn from that, it will be torn from him, just like the altar is being torn in two. Just like it was torn from Solomon's offspring, it will be torn from Jeroboam's. Now, this is what clutching after idols always does, by the way. It never delivers as promised. Now, think about this for a minute. What do you clutch, on, uh, clutch onto in the face of your fears and anxieties? Now, money is often one for us. We are people of means, typically here in the West, certainly here at City Presbyterian. That can be typical about us. And so when we are afraid, when the world kind of crouches at our door with things that cause us worry, we move towards money or some kind of technique, some kind of plan, some kind of way to deal with our, the things that are make, making us anxious. So if, for instance, you wake up in the middle of the night and you feel a pain. And you start to think on your pillow about what is causing said pain. Now, many of you are too young to have pain, but... We played softball the other night, and I know many of you have pain from that experience. You wake up, and so the, 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 the temptation, whenever you experience weakness, is in that moment to then thrust yourself on some sort of technique. I'm, I need to start working out again. I need to eat better. Like I'm woken up in the middle of the night. I need to have better sleep patterns. Like That's our technique. We have a plan about our anxiety, and the fulfillment of our plans is then we throw money at it or more plans at it. And voila, we start to do that, and then suddenly something breaks in and takes hold of our life, takes hold of our money, takes hold of our plan, and rips it away from us. And friends, what I want you to hear this morning, that is God's mercy. This is what it's meant to be for Jeroboam. The altar is split, and the prophecy of the one to come, Josiah, the one that will rip the kingdom from his hands, is meant to produce repentance. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm clutching on to something that I'm not, that's not able to hold on to my clutching. That's what every idol is, by the way. It's a clutching after some sort of God, some sort of power, some sort of thing that only God can give. And he is in the process. Notice the irony of this whole story. He's in the process of seizing hold of his power to seize hold of the man of God. He says, seize him with his right hand, the power of the king, right? And it immediately freezes, as if to reinforce for Jeroboam. That thing that you're clutching onto, that power that you think you have, it can be dried up in a second. And all those things that you're clutching onto for relief, friends, don't offer rest. They're just idols of your own making that temporarily make you feel better. The plan in the middle of the night makes you feel better temporarily. But when it's ripped away by something you cannot control, you see how feeble it truly is. And that is Jeroboam's outstretched hand. How dare you challenge the king? How how dare you try to take from my hand what my hand has built? The executing arm of the king. He tries to extend and enact judgment, but the severe mercy of God is waiting for him. 
and his hand is suddenly paralyzed. This is the irony of all of our fear-driven, anxiety-riddled plans. Now, let's take a quick inventory. What are your ways of taking hold of your world in the middle of your fears? What are your ways of agency in a world where it seems you might lack said agency? What do you do when you want to recapture the good old days or start a new tradition? What might God in his severe mercy be telling you when those ways are frozen, inert, or taken from you? And what do you do when it's taken? You see, the man of God declares God's word, his judgment. He exhibits it in the evisceration of the altar and the freezing of his arm. Both of these are an opportunity for repentance and recalibration for Jeroboam. And we think we get it, right? Look at verse 6. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God. Pray for me that my hand might be restored. And the man of God entreated to the Lord, and the king's arm was restored to him and became as it was before. The paralyzed arm is healed by the man of God. This is a sign of what God can do if Jeroboam turns and seeks the Lord, if he lets go of his idolatry mechanized by, by his fears. The ashes of the altar sticking to his face, drying out his mouth, are visceral reminders of the prophecy to come, but Jeroboam can return to the Lord. The man of God is speaking of what can and should be in Jeroboam's world, and this is true for us as well. What is frozen and torn for us is always meant to recalibrate us. The ash of death, of the death of plans or dreams. Now hear this, friends. Like we're, this is both real death and like symbolic death. Like we, we've had a hard time, like, like our daughter Blakely, you know how much she loves soccer. We've had a hard time that she isn't playing. And it, it feels like a death of a dream for her, for sure. But for us, what happens when the ash of that is all over your face and stuck in your throat? What do you do with that? Because it's a severe mercy of the Lord, by the way. For us to not idolize things we shouldn't idolize. Now move to, this is where the story gets really crazy. So let's look at the next move, the temptation of the man of God. 13.7, and the king said to the man of God, now keep in mind, you, you think here that maybe Jeroboam, like he's, pray, he's asked for prayer, maybe his heart is changing. The king said to the man of God, come home with me, and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God's, again, that kind of gives a hint of exactly what Jeroboam thinks, by the way. Like, he continues to think technique and power will save him. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. I will not eat your bread or water in the place. For so, now this is, we're clued in here to part of the story that we haven't been clued into before. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water, nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way, 
and did not return by the way that he went to Bethel. Now here we're given insights we didn't have before. Namely, the man of God has been commanded not to eat or drink. Where? In Bethel. He is under a food prohibition. Like Adam before him, and in this place, he is to live by the words in the mouth of the Lord. So the king's offer is temptation number one to the man of God. And quickly the man of God, which is no easy thing by the way, rejects the king's offer and returns the way he comes. But then we read in 11 to 19. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told all that the man of God had done in that day in Bethel. They also told to the father the words which he spoke to the king. And the father said to him, which way did he go? And his sons showed him the way, and the way the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And the man of God said, I may not return with you or go with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the will, word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there nor return by the way, uh, nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, hear this, I am also a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So the man of God went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now we are introduced to the second temptation. It comes from another prophet, simply the old prophet of Bethel. He receives report from his sons about the man of God. He saddles a donkey to retrieve him. He finds the man of God where? Resting under an oak. The temptation. The old man acting as a type of satanic figure, tempting the man of God, come home with me and eat. And the man of God repeats what he told the king, I cannot eat or drink, I must return the way I came. And then the old man inexplicably says, an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him to the house and eat. And then we're told he lies. But the man of God goes back with the old prophet to his house and eats and drinks. And the man of God resists the first temptation, but gives in to the second. And now move five, judgment on the man of God. Look at verse 20. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back, and he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place where he, which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water, but water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. Now let's stop here. Our text has two prophetic confrontations. The man of God confronts Jeroboam, the king, warning him of destruction. In the second, the old prophet, weirdly, after lying, the prophet assumes the mouthpiece of God, confronts the man of God, warning him of his immediate death. The old prophet is in the same relation to the man of God as the man of God is in relation to Jeroboam. And so hear this. What happens to the man of God serves as a warning of what will happen to Jeroboam. The man of God resists the temptation of the king, just as Jeroboam appeals for help when his hand is frozen, but the man of God falls when tempted a second time, as will Jeroboam. Now, Lightheart says, our greatest challenges arise as a church from the words of lies. Lies sown by what? Well, in our text, it's disinformation, false information from the mouth of the old man. The best lies, by the way, are the ones that we think are true. Now, we don't know exactly how long the man of God 
hasn't drank or ate. Now think about this. He journeys from Judah to Bethel. There is no cars, trains. He's walking on a donkey, whatever. He's fatigued. He's not yet home. We're told that we, he's lying under the shade of an oak tree. And the old man's words are probably particularly tempting. I mean, resisting the king was quite a feat. Who doesn't like being celebrated, revered? But now, tired and fatigued, he succumbs to the lies of the old prophet. Now, when we are tired, fatigued, afraid, we are susceptible to lies and disinformation, whether from lying prophets, priests, or politicians. What lies are you susceptible to? In the places of your greatest fears and anxieties, and when you're fatigued by those fears and anxieties, when you feel beaten down, what lies are you tempted to believe? Now, that may be hard for us to determine since lies are what they are, lies, and they catch us in vulnerable places, even places when we want to retain the good that we feel. Like when I'm feeling good, I am maybe even more susceptible to those lies. And when I'm confronted with failure, the culpability of believing the lie, do we double down? Do we resign ourselves to the punishment we deserve, shaming ourselves on the way down? Or do we turn from that way to the Lord? The man of God doesn't try to defend himself. Israel's kings also have no excuse. The one lying prophet will be multiplied in Elijah's generation to hundreds of lying prophets that the kings will follow. There's always someone who will tell you what you want to hear in your weaknesses, fears, and anxieties. And when we are tempted with those lies that sound so good and true, which way will we walk? Deuteronomy describes it this way, by the way. Will God's people walk in the way of God's words, his commands, or will they cut a different path being formed and shaped by other words? The man of God is to bring the word of God so that the people of God can cut that path, tread down, beat down a path in the word, formed in the world by, formed by the word. Their imagination is captured and shaped by what God says about them, about their world, their worship, their history. But in our fears and our anxieties and fatigue, in our disordered loves and desires, when beaten down by the ways of the world, the tempter comes in, whispers a lie. Is God really good? Don't you think you're missing out? God won't take care of you right now. I mean, look around. Look at what they're trying to do to you, Christian, in this world. You must protect, preserve your way and your children's ways. And there are things in the world that tempt us. The food and the drink of the old man are a real source of relief. There are things the world offers and the lies that Satan whispers that speaks to those desires and they seem so good. And for the moment, they feel that way. But then they become ash in the throat and frozen hands that can't do anything. And a body laid waste in the desert. Look at verse 23. After he'd eaten the bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road. And the donkey stood beside it. And the lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road. 
and the lion standing by the body, and they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. Cormac McCarthy right here, y'all. <clears throat> Here's what God is uh, unfolding. Now hear this. This is try to make sense of some of this. When Israel turns away from cutting a path by the word of the Lord, like the man of God who goes back to Bethel, they are on a path of destruction that leads to a grave in a foreign land. In other words, this story is foreshadowing what is to come. The road the prophet takes foretells the upcoming judgment for both Israel and Judah. The man of God is from where? Judah. The road to Bethel is a road to what? Exile. And this is to serve as a warning. A warning to the king if the king refuses to repent from cutting his own path and setting up altars and golden calves in the high places, if he will not turn back to the Lord, then like the man of God, his body will be laid waste by the lions of the world. And the donkey that carried him in on coronation day will be empty, and the bones, his bones, will be buried in a foreign land. The lion is sent to kill the man of God. Now this will be repeated, by the way, in Kings a few chapters later, in 1 Kings 20, weirdly. This text is representative. The man of God from Judah and the old prophet of Bethel. This is what one commentator says. The individual's mirror their kingdoms, and their tragedy portends the tragic destiny awaiting Israel and Judah. Israel has become unfaithful. Judah can speak the word that Israel needs to hear, but if Judah too, following Israel's lead, compromises its worship, as history shows it will do, they both are doomed and overcome by separation and death in exile. This moves to the next move, the bones of the old man and the prophet. Now, hear this in verse 26. When the, this is really weird. If you thought the, us, the other part was weird, it just gets weirder. When the prophet who had brought him back by the way of it heard, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of the Lord that spoke to him. And he said to his sons, Saddle a donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road. And the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. And the lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave. And they mourned over him saying, Alas, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, Bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar of Bethel and against all the houses in the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. Bodies on the road not eaten. That's a strange twist. Then the old prophet who lied and led to the destruction of the, old man, uh, the man of God wants now to have his bones buried in the same grave. Interesting, right? This is a foretelling of an Israel that centers its worship in Bethel and golden calves, that it's doomed. And this Israel will not be saved, by the way, until Judah dies too. You see, the death of the man of God is the, represents the death of Judah. And the death of the old man, who will be buried next to the man of Judah, 
offers hope for the reunion and restoration of Israel. And this leads to the last move, judgment on the king. Look at verse 33. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places, again from among the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became a sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. The sad end to the story is that Jeroboam does not turn from his way. He continues in his idolatry and sin. His fears did not release him to finding freedom in the way of Yahweh and the word of the prophet. He could not imagine the world as it was or Yahweh as the good God that he is. He could not imagine letting go of his power as a way to life. Even, through the, even though his hand is prophesied against, prophesied against him, so he will be cut off. And like the altar that's laid to waste, so too will be his throne. And friends, the severe mercy of God exposes the lies we believe. It allows us to taste the ash. It freezes us in fear mid-sentence. It causes the altars of the world that we have rested in, the high places that we have established for protection to, to crumble, the strongholds that we have run to, to be shut down and barred closed. And it feels like a hard word. We feel fatigued sitting under the oak tree. We're undone. We're laid to waste on the side of the road. This is God's severe mercy because it makes a way for true healing to be found. It takes us out of the path that we have cut in our fear and anxiety and puts us on a rock. Let's end this. For Israel, if she centers her worship in Bethel and on golden calves, then she's doomed to the death of an idol. It cannot save. It cannot speak. It cannot deliver or help. She is lost in the wrong place, a place devoid of the presence and power of God. But Israel will not be saved without this death. And neither will Judah. Judah must die for all of Israel to be saved. This is the message of 1 Kings. When the old prophet identifies with the man of Judah, the man of God, he hopes that his bones will rest in peace as he's united to the man of God in the grave. Just like Israel and Judah are united in the grave of exile, there is hope. Now hear this, we'll be done. Years later, another man of God will come. He too will condemn the shrines of Israel as dens of thieves. He too will call Israel to true worship, not in a solitary place, but instead of in him, his very own body, where the Spirit of God dwells. He is the greater Josiah, the one who sits on the throne from the house of David. This Josiah throws tables, breaks down false altars. So too the man of God does to Jeroboam. This prophet re- resists the seduction of dining with demons, of turning stones into bread. Instead, he holds fast to his father's word. However, this man of God is treated to the same fate as the unfaithful man of God and kings. This prophet is mauled and exiled to the grave of another man. He is sealed in this tomb. It appears his fate too is sealed. But this prophet and this Josiah and this temple do not remain in the grave any more than Israel and Judah does. The man of God dies for the sake of Israel and for the sake of us. All of us who run to strongholds in our fears and anxieties, This God dies for the sake of us. This man of God is the lion of Judah who's coronated on a donkey. This man of God is the true king whose words are words of life for all who believe.
So wherever you sit this morning in your fears and anxieties, the word of the Lord to you is come, rest, find rest, not relief, find true rest in the words of this one, Jesus, the true prophet and the true king who offers true salvation for you in the midst of your fears. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us uh, this morning as we come to your table that we're reminded once again of your faithfulness towards us in Christ. His broken body torn for us. Laying, not on an empty road, but on a cross. Buried in the tomb with another man's name. That is our hope. It doesn't seem like hope. There's so many other things that seem much more powerful to us. Much more powerful than bread and wine, for sure. But I pray this morning you would remind us, consecrate us to the true and better ways of Jesus. Instead of seizing power, help us to relinquish it and trust that resurrection awaits whenever we die to ourselves and heed the words of the Lord. Hear us this morning, we pray, like the cries of these children hear us as we cry for salvation, for relief, and actually for true rest found in him. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.